Oh, a wise guy, eh? Yes, and not just any wise guy. It's Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball, next on Baseball HQ Radio. on the way, a swing and a belt, well field, way back, Blue Jays win it, the Blue Jays are World Series champions, as Joe Carter hits a three-run home run in the ninth inning, and the Blue Jays... Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of August the 18th. It's show number 31 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols, our American League analyst, columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about learning from your experience, Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon is taking the week off this week, but in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about looking at the top prospects from 2001. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? A.J. Burnett has 15 wins. we got to talk some baseball. Yes, A.J. Burnett beat the Dodgers on Thursday, making him the first 15-win pitcher in Pittsburgh since 1999. And bonus points for you if you know the last Bucko 15-game winner was the immortal Todd Ritchie. It's the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report. And our old friend, the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, it's Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. And not a good week for the San Francisco Giants. The uh, big news of the week, of course, Melky Cabrera caught uh, with his pants down, I guess you could say, with testosterone way above the legal limit, and he's been suspended for 50 games, which, of course, takes in uh, all the rest of this year. Uh, it's a big story. What happens next? Well, you know, I, what happens next? I, Gregor Blanco comes in comes in, in San Francisco to take Melky Cabrera's place. Uh, Gregor Blanco is uh, probably not a guy you're going to want for much else on your on your fantasy team except except speed. Uh, currently hitting 236, but he does have 19 stolen bases and 301 at bats and and a uh, a 23 percent stolen base opportunity rate. So they'll let him run when he gets on, uh, and uh, he looks like he's going to be playing most of the rest of the way. If you need some stolen bases, Gregor Blanco is a good guy to look at. But you can't steal first, and this guy has a certain amount of trouble reaching base. Yeah, he does indeed. I mean, uh, this uh, his on-base percentage is not too bad. He does have a, a decent walk rate, uh, on-base percentage 329. So in an on-base league, he might be a bit more valuable than in a regular uh, league that does batting average. But uh, uh, he does seem to have a bit of a uh, – with a 30% hit rate, the guy is hitting 236. So uh, not somebody you're going to count on uh, raising his batting average very much uh, between here and the end of the well, season. Well, if he's, if he's got a 30% hit rate – 
he should have a fairly low contact rate. Is that the trouble? Uh, 75% contact rate, so uh, that's it's not that bad. I had Gregor Blanco on my roster earlier this year when I was really looking for speed. I eventually dropped him because it's, it's really empty speed. Yeah, very empty speed. I mean, that's about all you got to get from him. Uh, there's uh, very little power there, uh, so the speed is it. All right, uh, another big story I thought in Pittsburgh was James McDonald. Here's a guy who uh, in the first half was one of the big stories of the year. He's just doing so well, and in the second half, the wheels have come off somewhat, and with the uh, Pirates acquiring Wandy Rodriguez in the trade market, it looks like James McDonald going from being one of the better starters in the league to the bullpen. Well, you know, somebody, somebody's got to go to the bullpen uh, pretty soon in Pittsburgh. They've been using a six-man rotation. They had 20 games in 20 days, and so been getting through it with a six-man rotation. But the schedule begins to lighten a little bit for them, so they're going to go back to five to five guys. And uh, initially, you would have thought Kevin Correa was the guy going back. He's the guy who came in to, to make that a six-man rotation. But McDonald has had so much trouble in the uh, in the second half. And what manager Clint Hurdle said was, as fifth starter, he wants somebody who's going to be aggressive and throw strikes and make teams beat them with the bat. Well, that hasn't been McDonald in the second half. His walk rate is up to 5.2, uh, and as a result, his uh, he's he's having uh, his ERA has gone has gone way up, uh, 6.60 over his last eight starts. So it may be that they'll go with Correa, who at least has kind of kept them in the ball game, uh, even though he's no great shakes himself. Yeah, no great shakes is perhaps overstating the case. Uh, Kevin Correa barely barely uh, rosterable, except maybe in uh, the deepest of leagues. Uh, our uh, Chris Olson had a commentary on Todd Frazier, a cornerman in the Cincinnati Reds lineup, and uh, he's been getting some playing time with Joey Votto on the shelf and doing uh, pretty well with it. Yeah, Todd Frazier has been doing very, very well with his playing time. With uh, Votto on the shelf and the Scott Rowland on the shelf, Razor's become a regular in the uh, in the Cincinnati lineup. And currently hitting two eighty three with fifteen homers and forty nine RBIs in just under three hundred bats, and that's not a that's a pretty good season for anyone. Uh, power index of one sixty six, so we're looking at uh, at a, a very, very good power uh, and has a decent speed. A speed index of one twenty five. He's only stolen a couple of bases because they're not letting him run. Uh, but this is a guy who has some. Uh, has some skills given the opportunity. Over the last month, he's hit almost 300 with five homers, 19 RBIs. So hopefully when Votto comes back, they'll keep Frazier in the lineup, and there's a good chance that'll happen. Scott Rowland's back is bad, and so even if Rowland does come back and get back in the lineup, uh, Frazier may continue to get the chance to play uh, on a fairly regular basis. It certainly looks that way. Rowland, uh, even when he's playing out there, I, I'm a Reds fan, and I watch them on extra innings as often as I can, and even when he's playing out there, he just looks miserable. He looks stiff and old and doesn't look like he can get the job done uh, on any kind of regular basis. Todd Frazier looks like he could be the kind of guy to pick up. Yeah, really does. Nick, uh, over in uh, Colorado, we had uh, Michael Kadire was on the DL. Now he's back. Uh, what does that mean for the playing time of uh, Eric Young? Well, they've said that Eric Young is going to continue continue starting. And Eric Young has been uh, been very hot over the past month. Uh, hit three seventy seven over the last month and really kind of caught the manager's eye. He's been doing a good job as a leadoff hitter in Colorado. Uh, of course, we know Eric Young has speed. Over his career, he's stolen a base about every uh, about every ten at bats, I believe. So. Here's a guy who really, really can fly. Speed is probably down a little bit this year. He's not stealing quite as much, but even then, he's got 13 stolen bases right now at 164 at bats, uh, and they say they're going to leave him in the lineup uh, as long as uh, as long as he's hitting. So uh, as long as his hot streak continues, Eric Young is not a bad guy to own. 
Yeah, he's got a 369 on base percentage, partly a result of that inflated batting average. Uh, the the red flag here seems to be Nick that his walk rate's only down around seven percent. And really, you'd like to see a guy with this kind of uh, with this kind of speed getting on base more by drawing a few more walks. Yeah, you would indeed. You know, you wish he'd get that walk rate of over ten percent, and then he would have some real value. The thing that uh, there's kind of a specter hanging over Eric Young, and that's Tyler Colvin. Uh, Tyler Colvin's hit very very well as uh, as well. Uh, looks like he may have to head to the bench for a while. What what may wind up happening in the Colorado outfield is a kind of rotation uh, that will go, give all the outfielders a little bit of rest and really sort of going with a four-man outfield uh, and letting the regulars get some rest uh, out there as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in Colorado, but the manager says that Eric Young's going to continue playing as long as he's hot. And that's a that's a warning sign to me, Nick. When a manager says, as long as he's hot, that means as soon as he cools off, he's probably going to be grabbing some bench, and a player like Eric Young is going to get cooled off here sooner or later because it's a hot streak, and that's just what happens with hot streaks. Uh, Stephen Nickrand, our starting pitching buyer's guide columnist, wrote a column recently called One Split Away, and he looked at pitchers who have big differences in their skills performance between facing left-handed batters and right-handed batters, and one of the names that was prominent on that list was Lance Lynn of St. Louis. Yeah, Lance Lynn, of course, has had an excellent season coming in to replace Chris Carpenter, a 3.65 ERA, uh, 13 wins. There's certainly nothing you're going to uh, quarrel about in terms of Lance Lynn's overall performance. 135 strikeouts and 138 innings. The guy has been been really, really good. But Stephen Nickrand pointed out that Lance Lynn has the biggest skill split among Major League pet- starting pitchers between left-handed and right-handed bats. Uh, when he's facing right-handers, Lance Lynn has Steven Strasburg-type skills. Uh, dominance of almost 10 strikeouts per nine innings, 1.0 control, uh, huge, huge BPV, 173 BPV. I mean, this guy is lights out against right-handers. When he faces left-handers, though, he can't find the plate. Uh, his control goes from 1.0 against right-handers, 5.7 against left-handers. And so, tends to put a lot of left-handers on base, uh, and that, of course, ends up raising his ERA. If he could get to find a way to improve his control against left-handers, this guy would be a definite sub-3.5 ERA pitcher. I guess the question is, can he find that? Yeah, you know, that's the big question. And, and uh, he's a fairly young guy. Certainly there's a, there's a chance that that could happen. Uh, and uh, certainly a pitching coach has got to work with that and try to get, uh, get him to be able to find the plate more often. It's very, very curious. I wonder wonder what it is. Obviously, it's the offhand batter, which means maybe he's a little worried in the back of his mind that he's going to get hit. Uh, it's an interesting uh, problem to have, but boy, it, it sure makes him look intriguing as a long-run prospect. If you're thinking next year, you know, you get a guy, he's, he's going to have pretty decent numbers overall because uh, of those great splits against right-handed batting, which is going to be most of the league, of course. And, uh, and, uh, then you think to yourself, boy, if this guy does figure it out when you're sitting at the uh, auction table or the draft table next year, if he does figure this out, man, oh, man, we could really have something here. Yeah, you know, 5.7 walks per nine innings against left-handers right now. If he can even get that down to three per nine innings, I mean, just right. just think what the, what a difference that could make. Yeah, exactly right. And, Nick, before we let you go, last week we talked about the uh, situation in the bullpen in Milwaukee where John Axford uh, really lost every aspect of being a a useful closer and uh, they had a bunch of guys try out for the role and they settled on Jim Henderson and then uh, he imploded. Yeah you know we we warned we warned that Jim Henderson might have an implosion coming up simply because his 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 uh, lengthy record of success simply is not there I mean it's been this year and that's been about it and so Jim Henderson has had uh, sort of a rough week Uh, he uh, since we talked about him a week ago uh, came in uh, 
in one one inning gave up an earned run, then came in and, and in a third of an inning gave up three hits, two earned runs. Uh, it's taken a couple of losses this week, uh, but the, the uh, Milwaukee Brass has said they're going to stick with Jim Henderson, and sure enough, uh, he got a save on uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, pitched two thirds of an inning, just gave up one hit, didn't manage to allow any runs. So it'll be interesting to see what they do in Milwaukee. My my gut feeling about that whole situation is that John Axford still has the skills. And so once he gets out of the slump he's in, I think Axford is the guy who's going to be the real closer in Milwaukee. Might be the time to grab him off your free agent wire or, or inquire from a frustrated owner if he's interested in trading John Axford, especially if you're in a keeper league. Yeah, I think so. Definitely worth looking at. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out again this week. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. All right, thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. An historic week, Patrick. It was indeed, and let's start with the history-making performance of Felix Hernandez up in Seattle through a perfect game at the Tampa Bay Rays. And first of all, we have to say Tampa Bay seems to be the victim of a lot of these, but Felix Hernandez kind of putting the capper on another pretty terrific year. Well, he's certainly an outstanding starter. It's hard to argue with any of his skills, and uh, I've seen some articles saying it may be one of the greatest games ever pitched that he was so dominant there. Uh, his ERA, though, is 260, and it's really hard to to concede that it's going to stay that low the rest of the way. His expected area is 3.11 because he has a high 77% strand rate. And we're really splitting hairs. It's the only thing we can look at in his skill set that says maybe there's some correction coming. Uh, everything else is right in line, 4 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio, uh, you know, low fly ball rate of 30%. Everything about Hernandez screams superstar, other than the fact that he's stranding an awful lot of runners and his hit rate's just a tick below normal. But I think coming off a perfect game, you're going to have those kinds of statistical anomalies. You are, and uh, I was talking, as you know, with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. Gene's of the opinion that if a pitcher does what we consider not to be a skill but repeats it time and time again, that maybe we have to start giving him credit for a skill. And you and I have talked about Jared Weaver of the Angels and his low home run per fly ball rate. And I'm going to suggest that maybe... Uh, Felix Hernandez does have some kind of strand rate skill. 2008, it was 77%. 2009, 80%. 2010, 81%. 2011, 73%. And here again this year, 77%. This is not something that is coming out of left field. You should forgive the expression. Matt, it looks like this guy knows how to strand runners. I think certainly, and his ballpark helps that. It's been one of the best pitchers' ballparks this year up at Safeco Field. And it's hard to argue with that logic. I mean, if you look... At his performance recently, he definitely does bear down with runners on base, and he's one of the few pitchers that have shown that he can pitch better with runners on base and proven it statistically uh, compared to an observation that may or may not hold true when we look at the numbers. And uh, Felix Hernandez, to stay with him for a second, his expected ERA the last four years, he's been almost exactly half a run and sometimes more below it each of the last four years, except for 2011. He was actually a little higher, but his ERAs the last four years in 09, 249, then 227, this year 260, and in each instance he's half a run below his expected ERA. It could be that he's just one of those guys like Ichiro used to be that just defies the metric. Well, expected ERA is going to take into account a normalized strand rate. So, therefore, if he does have a higher strand rate, it is going to show that he should have an expected ERA that is also higher. Now, it wasn't that long ago, Matt, that we thought Zach Greinke, uh, then of the Kansas City Royals, and he's moved around since to uh, the National League and now back to the American, we thought Zach Greinke might be 
on a par with Felix Hernandez, especially after his Cy Young year. And uh, now he's back in the American League, as I said. He's with the L.A. Angels. They were counting on him to shore up their rotation. He's been not good at all. It is not, but we think his skills certainly are, are still tremendous. He's striking out nearly a batter in inning overall. His expected ERA is 3.11, well below his actual 3.74 ERA, and his fly ball rate has been decreasing each of the last four years. Only 25% of balls in play in the air. Conversely, of course, his ground ball rate has been rising each of those years, so he's consciously trying to keep the ball on the ground. He's got excellent control, strikes out plenty of batters, so very good skills. Here, the only fly in the ointment is the hit rate of 34%, which is very high, making him unlucky. Now, you could argue that he had a 33% hit rate in 2011, and therefore he may be a player who allows more uh, hits on balls in play, as he had 31% each of 2009-2010. Or you could say, hey, this guy is going to normalize, and therefore his ERA should come down. Yeah, it's a it's a tough case to make really in either direction, isn't it? Because you can look at past performance and say, you know, in 2009 when he had that great year, 216 ERA, 107 whip, his hit rate was uh, down around 31%. Now it's up around 33%. In the past it's been 32, 33, so that seems pretty normal. And strand rate sometimes is a function of bad luck and sometimes bad defense was certainly the case in Kansas City. Well, and in Milwaukee, his defense was okay, but certainly not the quality of Eric Ibar, Howie Kendrick, and Albert Pujols uh, on the infield, and uh, an outfield of Steve Trout and often Peter Borges out there. So I think he's got very solid defense behind him with the Angels. So I would expect him, if I had to, as a betting man, to improve, especially based on those uh, strikeout rate versus walk rate. Yeah, combining a big strikeout rate and a big ground ball rate is usually a formula for success. That is a good team, solid bullpen. Um, I'd, I'd gamble on Zach Greinke at this point if somebody was frustrated. Me too. The only question is if his social anxiety disorder uh, is an issue when the pressure's on down the pennant race. And he's not really, he's been in one last year, you know, the Brewers have been solid the last couple of years, but you know we have to know whether that person can handle that stress. Stress changes things, and uh, each person is different how they react. Well, he insists that it's not an issue, so I guess we'll we'll wait and see. Uh, John Lester in Boston, kind of a similar story. He's had a bad year. We expected much better results going into 2012 than we've got from John Lester, but again, maybe this is a situation where he's. His skills are better than his out- outcomes. Most certainly, that's the case here. His expected ERA is 373, so a run and a half below his actual ERA. Uh, we do see his strikeout rate declining each of the last four years, but his control's improved, uh, so we like that. And his again, his ground ball rate has generally been higher. His fly ball rate generally going down. The big problem here seems to be his strand rate he like Felix Hernandez had always been better with runners on base with strand rates the past three years in the mid 70s next year a very low 63 percent that's unusually low so a high home run per fly ball rate of 14 percent so I would say if you look at his skills he's still almost three to one strikeouts to walk it's that low strand rate that's really causing problems and when things start going downhill they go downhill quickly, and mentally you lose concentration. And he was left in there for that uh, 11 or 12 run outing there about a month ago. Uh, he's had trouble in Fenway Park where he's allowed 12 homers and has an ERA of 683. Yep. So he's got the skills. He just needs to return his focus. It seems like he's starting to turn it around here the last couple starts. So I, w- I like Lester coming down the stretch to be better than he was the first part of the year.
That whole hit rate thing, uh, Matt, his line drive rate is up substantially this year at 24% versus the 16 17% it has been the last few years, which indicates that something's wrong with his pitching. He's giving up more line drives. But on the other hand, a strand rate, as I mentioned a moment ago, is also a function of team defense, and Boston's litany of injuries has certainly affected their ability to put their best defensive team on the field. Pedroia has been out for a while. They've had a ring around the rosy at third base. Will Middlebrooks is not great. Uh, Mike Aviles, nobody ever mistook him for Mark Belanger at, at short. And Crawford's out and Ellsbury's out in the in the uh, outfield for extended periods this year. Maybe John Lester, now that the the Red Sox are pulling everything together, might be a good play. I think so. I would bet on those skills taking advantage and. Uh... And I also want to see the Ring Around the Rosie. Maybe we can do that Arizona Fall uh, League there. Maybe do a big game of Ring Around the Rosie. But I, I want to be on your team. <laughs> All right. And uh, staying with uh, one, uh, a couple more pitchers, Glenn Perkins of the Twins was not a very skilled starter, but he's a very skilled reliever. He sure has been. He's almost doubled his strikeout rate, and that's made him a very effective reliever. Uh, almost over 3-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. He has a high hit percentage. But he also had that as a starter. He was never known as a dominant starter then. But even as a reliever, 34% hit rate this year, 33% in 2011. And uh, in the past, he had a lot of ground ball tendencies. He's not been so in 2012, only 39% ground ball rate and an increase to 39% fly ball. That's very much outside the norm he's established the last three years. So I would expect Perkins to uh, return to normal, get that, keep that ball on the ground more often, um, and uh, if his strikeout rate keeps growing like this and his walk rate keeps decreasing, this could be a, a great flyer in the bullpen here for the rest of this year and for next year. Yeah, I like him uh, as a potential closer. Uh, I know a lot of managers don't like left-handers. Matt, do you think, is it possible that he's adjusting his approach to get more fly balls because he plays in such a big field and he's got Ben Revere out there, he's got Denard Spann out there? I'd be tempted to give up fly balls if I had outfielders like that. Well, he could be, but he didn't do that last year. Uh, I, I think he's probably reaching back. for. He's figured out that strikeout pitch. I think he's relying on that. I think maybe you have fewer balls in play, uh, and therefore you're going to see some statistical abnormalities there and some things switch a little bit because he's striking out more batters. He's uh, not walking as many batters. I think batters are struggling. Maybe they're popping up more because of his dominant stuff. I think he's found some dominant pitches, and he's probably going to find them. Uh, keep using them. His fastball, for example, is 95 miles an hour. He's only about 90 as a starter. So I think he's uh, found some success, and he's trying to exploit those pitches that are working for him. Over in Detroit, Annabelle Sanchez came over in a trade from Florida to shore up their rotation as they get ready to take a run at the pennant in the American League Central. But since he's joined uh, his American League team, like Zach Granke, the results have not been fantastic. Well, it's always a big adjustment mentally for a player to change teams, change leagues. When we look at the skills of Sanchez, there's nothing wrong at all. Uh, still 3-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. He's not striking out as many batters in 2012 as he had in the past. But if we look at the second half, we see uh, his walk rate has actually gone down. He's walking less batters, but a 39% hit rate, which equates about a 390 BABIP, creates a huge disparity between his actual ERA and his expected ERA. So uh, he had a high home run per fly ball rate at 16%, and that high hit percentage has created an ERA issue for Sanchez. Skills-wise, this pitcher is just as good as ever. His fly ball rate has gone down. His ground ball rate has gone up. Um, he's back to his historical norms, basically, in strikeout rate. It's just a matter of him settling in here. Uh, although, again, here's a guy with a little bit of a high hit rate four out of the last five years.
Yeah, the the hit rate issue I think might be stuck with Annabelle Sanchez, Matt. The uh, problem is he does generate a fair number of ground balls up in the mid-40% range. And uh, when you're hitting ground balls towards an infield that's made up of Miguel Cabrera at third, Johnny Peralta at short, and Prince Fielder at first, it's only slightly more mobile than the uh, monuments at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, it's, it's one of the worst fielding teams out there. It's been their Achilles heel all year. As they try to, the, Omar Infante helped secure second base a little bit, which was also uh, somewhat of an issue. And uh, you know, Austin Jackson can't catch everything. He he saves him a lot of runs, but uh, you know, the corner outfielders aren't known for their defense either. So you don't know what's going to happen when you put the ball in play in Detroit. Except that you can be pretty confident, and it's more likely to be a hit than when you put it in play against a really sound defensive team. That would be the conclusion. Speaking of Detroit, Matt, uh, a couple of years ago at one of the first pitch forums in the Northeast, these preseason forums that Baseball HQ runs, uh, you said something that was pretty daring at the time. You said that Albert Pujols was no longer Albert Pujols and that Miguel Cabrera was, in fact, the new Albert Pujols. Do you, do you stand by that? Well, I certainly do, although Pujols, as we talked about last week, has come back to have a great year. What I was trying to get across to our audience was that Miguel Cabrera was doing the same things Albert Pujols was doing, but not getting the publicity for it. And Miguel Cabrera was younger, whereas Pujols was going to be starting to enter the downside of his career where he was going to have some more struggles, it appeared. Um, so Cabrera certainly lived up to his end of the bargain. Again, this year, I'll probably set a career high in home runs uh, with a high 21% home run to fly ball rate, which is his career high. Uh, also, he's hit about 30 homers. He's matched his total from 2011. He's making more contact at the plate. His contact rate has gone up each of the last five years. So he's striking out less and still hitting with just as much power. His walk rate is much lower in 2012, I think, because he's been so hot. Uh, I think the ball looks so huge for him. He thinks he can hit everything. He has his ninth straight 100 RBI season and has just been a monster in fantasy leagues. His hit rate is actually lower in 2012 than it has been the past three years. So you could argue that his his batting average could go up. Uh, Even though our our metrics don't point that way, that is an argument you could make. And his fly ball rate is not as high as it was uh, in 2008 through 2010. So there's even more power upside here with Miguel Cabrera. Could be, uh, do you think that his walk rate is down because they can't pitch around him as easily as they used to now that he's got uh, Prince Fielder behind him? Well, that certainly could be one of the major factors. It does change a pitcher's uh, approach when you got the Prince standing behind him. It's a pretty imposing figure. They both are, but uh, you can't just get around Cabrera as the only guy in the lineup anymore, and that's a big impact of Prince Fielder joining the Tigers. Lots of research that says there's no such thing as lineup protection, but sometimes you really have to wonder. And finally, Matt, Nick Markakis of Baltimore at one time was thought of as being a potential five-tool star for fantasy baseball owners. He's never quite got there. No, he didn't, and he's had a real interesting year this far. Uh, Came cheap in a lot of leagues because his powers disappeared. He actually has hit 13 homers so far, and his power index is 112, better than league average. What's interesting about it is most of the power came in the first half and now in the last week or two. Um, his power next in the second half of the season is only 95, but his contact rate is 95%. 95% is unheard of over an extended period of time. We're only talking 131 at-bats here, but still 95% gets your attention. I think it's because he moved into the leadoff spot where he's focusing on making contact, hitting 336 in the second half. So Marcakis really has come back from that wrist injury or the broken hamate bone and has been his old self of a few years ago. He's got some pop. 
He's got plate patience. He makes excellent contact. So this is uh, re-emerging as a great asset on your fantasy team. I think you're right about his uh, taking his responsibilities in the leadoff slot seriously uh, from April through June. His on-base percentage was around 330, kind of what you'd expect for a guy who thought of himself as a run producer. Then he moved to that leadoff spot July uh, right around 420 for an on-base percentage, so he's walking more, he's being more patient, he's he's stroking the ball for hits rather than worrying about home runs. The one thing I'd like to see is uh, I wonder if he's going to get some more stolen bases. He had 12 last year, but only one this year. You'd think uh, a guy leading off might run a little more although Baltimore doesn't run right and in that ballpark you tend to wait for the home run so his speed score is nothing exciting 93 although it is 115 here in the second half but he just isn't getting the opportunity to go they're they're station to station so I would not expect the stolen bases to return I would note that since he's moved to the leadoff spot his walk rate has actually went down to seven percent he's always been a good on base guy the big difference in that on base percentage is his batting average he's just so hot right now making such great contact with the ball 29% 29% line drive rate. That's what's propping up the on-base percentage. So he hasn't really become that much more patient as a leadoff hitter. He's just hitting better for average, and that's pushing up the on-base percentage. But historically, he's always been a good on-base guy, always had it a walk rate, at least league average, normally a, a little bit higher than that. All right, Matt, your Market Pulse commentary coming right up later on in the show. What's your topic this week? Well, it's fantasy football draft season, and you talk about your draft process, and now when you're experiencing your team, if you're having a a success or if you're having struggles, is it because of the process you used or just the luck of outcomes? Because they can change dramatically. It's very important to know the difference so that you can be successful next year. All right, Matt, thanks very much for doing this. Catch up with you again in a week. Look forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com, the official video blogger of Stratomatic and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball comes up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 715. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate, and listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. A pleasure now to be joined for the third time this season by Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball. Great guy. And Gene, uh, good to have you back. Thank you, Patrick. I understand you're going to give me a hard time today because I made the foolish suggestion that we talk about being wrong. Yeah. I think being talking about being wrong is a really good idea because it's something we don't do often enough. And uh, and it's you learn a lot more, as your mom probably told you or your dad many years ago said, uh, you know, you'll learn more from your mistakes than you'll learn from your successes because uh, the, the uh, behaviorists say we tend to give ourselves too much credit for our successes and not enough blame for our mistakes. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I think that, you know, everybody's going to be wrong. Anybody who's played this game for any any length of time knows that you're going to be wrong about a lot of things and and the key to becoming a better player is to figure out why you were wrong and if there's anything you can do about it for uh, for next year or even this year you raise an interesting point there gene in that there's different ways of being wrong when you're playing fantasy baseball and uh 
One of them is having the wrong strategy, and the other one is picking the wrong players, but having the right while having the right strategy. Or I suppose you could do both: have the bad strategy and the bad players. But really, uh, especially when you're playing in a league with a lot of uh, good fellow owners, sometimes you're just going to pick good players who have bad seasons, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Where can you make improvements in that regard? Well, I, the best thing you can do is size up the percentages and and say and go with the percentages as you see them percentages are only that uh, they, over time they're going to work out but in any given season we know that a lot of things aren't going to work out and um, you know it, it happens in the real game of baseball and I, and I think that we should uh, be reassured personally by it you know i don't know if you noticed that the first two months of the season the pirates were the worst hitting team in baseball and then for a month and a half they were the best hitting team in baseball if that can happen with the real teams i think that we should be encouraged uh, or not discouraged when when we're wrong about something and uh, know that the percentages are going to go the other way eventually they're going to come into line when we're looking at low-risk plays, and that's really at the top of a draft in the early rounds of a, of a straight draft format or in the big dollar expenditures in an auction format, Gene, the, the mantra is always, uh, I know you say you've got to get those high-average power hitters, and you've got to get, if you're going to get pitching early, it has to be very reliable high strikeout pitchers with good ground ball or extreme fly ball rates. And yet this year you could have applied that, uh, that logic to getting uh, Tim Lincecum, Cliff Lee, Roy Halladay, and even Corey Lubke in between injury and, and poor performance, you could really have had a disaster on your hands. And, and I guess what I'm asking you is, is there anything you can do about that? Well, I mean, you have to draft for durability. Um, yeah, I mean, this has been a year where there have been a few notably durable players who've been hurt and also uh, notably injury-prone players who haven't gotten hurt. Right. I don't think there's anything you can do about it. Um, what I do think, though, is that if you're going to be wrong, I think it's better to be wrong negatively uh, because in a, in a draft or auction format, you're not going to get 11 out of 12 players or 14 out of 15 players anyway. Um, it's more important to key on the players that you do want um, for that um, for a durability factor. And yeah, but you show me a strategy, and I'll show you a first-place team and a last-place team with that strategy. It's really all about the players. Um I can say, though, I mean, you mentioned um, Lincecum. I mean, to me, he was not a great play this year. Now, Halliday, I, you know, I could have fallen for Halliday just as, uh, just as anybody else because he's got, he is durable. I mean, he uh, has a record of excellence, uh, sort of a, you know, a straight record of excellence. But, you know, that happens with hitters, too. It does, and, and I guess the, the the question is, is there anything to be learned from it? Or at some point you just say, look, Roy Halladay, seven straight years of of complete durability, never missed a start or missed a start here or there over that period. And this year, you know, he gets goes on the DL, misses a ton of time. Do you just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, that happens? Or do you say there's something about him going into this year I should have seen? I don't think so in Halladay's case. The only the only thing I would say is that as a player gets older, you know, as he starts to hit his mid-30s, you have to uh, discount the durability a little bit because he's just more likely to get hurt. I mean, even the fluke kind of injury that, uh, you know, non-arm related, in other words, for a pitcher. Um, yeah, beyond that, I think you do just have to shrug your shoulders and say, okay, you know, I, I, I did the right thing here, um, but it just didn't work. 
sometimes that happens. While we were exchanging uh, emails, we were setting up this call, Gene. Uh, you said about strategy, and I quote, I know I'm right about the basic concepts. So let me ask you on behalf of thousands of curious listeners, what are those concepts and why are you so sure you're right? Well, uh, the first one is durability, and and, and I do think that's right. I, I just, it hasn't been, it hasn't particularly worked this year, um, but over time it is going to work, and it does work over time. Um, other elements of strategic elements are do not draft catchers, do not chase catchers early, let them fall to you, um, do not chase saves uh, or pure speed, uh, let it fall to you. Um, and I know there was something else, I'm sure I'll think of it as I go along. Um, but yeah, I mean, and also it, the, the type of game that you play dictates a lot of the strategies. Now, the thing about durability, I mean, if you're playing challenge games like the CDM or the fan tracks game, I don't pay any attention at all to durability in that, or very little. Uh, that's the place to own the injury-prone players, because if they get hurt, you can change your roster, you can buy a different player, and somebody else might be playing for durability. There's an edge to not playing for durability there. So in a season where Josh Hamilton stays healthy, you reap, you reap him from day one. Um, and if he gets hurt, okay, you buy somebody else. Um, but in, an ex- in a league with exclusive ownership, I don't think that you can play that way because, you know, these guys have track records of getting hurt, and if it works one year out of three that they don't or one year out of four, um, you're going to lose three years. And, I'll, you know, I'm sorry. I would, I'd rather take a player who's maybe even not quite as good as Josh Hamilton Um but who has a track record of durability. You mentioned saves and not chasing them. You said in a couple of places in this year's Wise Guy Baseball Annual, you need to get, you always need to get lucky with saves. And this year, with all the injuries and poor performances we saw, and the, the churn and closers more than ever, you seem to be really, really right about this. How do you think, as we look down the road, this knowledge or this concept should affect fantasy owners and how they look at uh, drafting closers? Well, I think it's already affected them. Um, I think every year you see closers going cheaper and closers going later, and I think that's great. Um, what, I, what I think it means is uh, particularly the only way that you should reach for a closer these days, and you might be able to get away with it next year because as the owners, you know, as everybody does something, it starts to make sense to think the other way. Um, there is one advantage to picking that you can get in saves. You can't predict saves. You can't predict strikeouts. Um, so I think what you're going to see next year, you'll see Kimbrell and Aralvis Chapman go first. If they go late enough, you know, in a draft, you know, after say 125 players are gone, I might jump in and get one of those guys because because of the strikeouts. They're huge. And over the course of even 80 innings that are reliever pitches, you know, 25 strikeouts more than the next guy, that's something that you can that you can plan for. But in general, I think the market is taking care of it. They're devaluing uh, closers. They're devaluing saves, as they should. Um, and no matter who you get, you have to figure that you're going to be scrambling because of injury or a guy loses his job forever or even for a little while. Um, so you just got to keep your eyes open and, and fathom, you know, I mean, that's, um, I had my, my season this year, <clears throat> pardon me, I had, uh, I drafted Jason Mott and, um, and Walden on the Angels, Walden who lost his job within a week, 
Um, so I was kind of hung out to dry. And But I got lucky, on the other hand, because I had also dra- drafted Araldus Chapman, who I figured he was going to be a starter. And so he got into that role. But also, Mott, for as well as he's pitched this year, was not that great early on. And the Cardinals kept scoring four runs in the bottom of the eighth and robbing him of save opportunities. And that's pure luck. There's nothing you can do about that. Um, you just have to sit and endure it and hope that, yeah, they're playing for a good team and and he's going to get his save opportunities before the year is over. But, yeah, you have to figure that you're going to scramble um, at least a little and maybe a lot during the course of the season. And a big key, I think, is probably being aware of situations in the saves market where you need to get in a week before the guy gets anointed the closer and start making those kind of gambles. And the reason I say that is I, I got basically shut out of saves at the draft table at Tout Wars this year. You and I were sitting side by side. I foolishly uh, gambled on Sean Marshall, which I shouldn't have. That didn't pan out. But over the course of the year, I was in early on on Ernesto Frieri of the Angels, and he picked up a bunch of saves, and a couple of other guys like that, as were you. And here we are, sort of middle of the pack in saves without having invested heavily in closers at the table. And I think guys are going to notice that and depress the price of, of closers. I mean, even Mariano Rivera, who went for a handsome dollar in a lot of leagues, didn't turn out to be such a good investment this year. And I wonder at some point uh, or how far down the road it's going to be when everybody says, you know what, I'm not spending money on closers anymore. Yeah, I, I think that day is coming. Um, I think we've already started to see it, and the experiences of the last few years will only reinforce it. The only thing that can change it is, is a change in the, in the, the game itself. Um, for years I've been wondering why teams won't pitch their closers a couple of innings at a time, or, or if if some team does that, I mean, it doesn't seem to me to be a huge stretch stretch on an arm for a pitcher to pitch a hundred innings a season. Um, you know, it's not you could pitch it's two innings twice a week. Um, some team is, who has, that has nothing to lose, I think, is eventually going to do that, and that's what we have to keep our eyes open for. Other than that, I I think it's great that people devalue saves because it makes it's such a luck driven category. It doesn't really tell you anything about your knowledge of baseball, and it kind of making it such luck driven kind of puts everybody on the same plane and almost eliminates it as something to worry about. And I like that. I, I like it should be more about what you know and. You know, rather than what some manager is going to decide, who's going to get three outs with a three-run lead, um, you can't figure that. It's impossible. Um, so let's just scramble for it and sort on a sort of equal playing field and hope for the best. I think that's all you can do. Sooner or later, some team like we saw the Rockies this year try this um, four-man rotation with with seventy pitch limits and so on—a a bit of an out-of-the-box approach to pitching to try to address a need. It, it can't be long before somebody realizes, A, they're, they're getting tired of paying the Jonathan Papelbons of the world $15 million bucks a year to pitch 65 innings when $15 million bucks could get you Cliff Lee pitching 200 or, or close to it. And when that happens, there's going to be a huge swing in how saves are allocated and how pitchers are used. You know what I think back to, Gene, and you're uh, of a vintage similar to myself that uh, – I'm looking for the next Mike Marshall. You remember, here's a guy, what, he was throwing close to 200 innings out of the bullpen, racking up 30 saves and getting you 15 wins while he was at it with a 2 ERA. Right, yeah, I think that is, that is going to happen. And I also think the teams are going to realize, hey, it's not that tough to get three outs with a three-run lead. 
And they might go to a, a sort of two-closer approach where one of the closers is a kind of crafty veteran, uh, you know, LeVon Hernandez type who's used to getting out of trouble that he, that he gets into himself and throw him the, the three-run saves. And if he gets into trouble, then bring in the closer to get one out. Um, and then have another closer to pitch two innings when the score is tied or you've got a one-run lead. Um, it seems to me to be a, a smarter allocation of the of the really high leverage situations, um, and I think some team is going to do that. It, it, it's right around the corner. On the other night, on uh, I heard Oral Hershiser say that he thinks there are two or three pitchers on every team that are capable of closing, and I think Oral Hershiser to me is sort of like the great mean of baseball knowledge. Um, so I think that it's people are starting to realize that it is going to happen. Yeah, it, and you know, years ago when um, they used to get, I used to listen to XM Radio in the morning. They had a, a baseball-related show on, and Rob Dibble was was on it one morning. And I phoned in and I said, considering that starting pitchers go into the bullpen and throw pretty hard two or three days into their rest period between starts, why couldn't they do that on the mound in the seventh inning or the eighth inning? You know, why couldn't you sneak, um, if you've got a, a Justin Verlander, a guy's got a rubber arm anyway, why couldn't you sneak him into the bullpen in the seventh inning if you were in a tight game and let him get his throwing day in by getting somebody out instead of just firing the ball in the bullpen for, you know, 40 pitches or whatever they do on their on their throw day? And he said, the reason you can't do that is because we don't do that. Yeah, and in fact, it's a throwback to because if you look at the you know in the twenties and thirties, Lefty Grove led the league in saves a couple of times. He only had nine saves, but they use that exact principle. And I, what has been done can be done. And if you do it successfully enough, maybe you can free up a spot for a bench hitter. Yeah, uh, which teams need? I mean, you see teams you know really bad hitters having to bat in extra inning games these days because they if there's nobody on the bench. I agree with you. I think it. Is, I think it is going to happen. Trouble is, I've been waiting for it for about ten years, and it still hasn't <laughs> happened yet. But I think it will happen. Yeah, it. it people, uh, the general managers nowadays are getting very smart about getting value for their dollar, and it looks like that's a, a, an easy way to pursue value for dollars. And paying, I, I think, paying Jonathan Papelbon fourteen or fifteen million bucks is ludicrous when you're a team that has other issues it could address with that kind of money. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. Gene, you, you've talked about how you think the Lima plan doesn't really work in 5x5 five five because you're basically uh, running the risk of punting both wins and strikeouts. And you said you do support semi-dumping the saves and stolen base categories. I guess we've talked about saves, but why stolen bases? Well, because speed comes into the year, uh, into the league every year. Uh, every year there there are players who are drafted late or not even drafted who wind up in the league leaders in stolen bases. Uh, I don't advocate dumping speed at all, and maybe maybe the term semi dumping is a is unfortunate. Um, I just don't I don't want to overpay for it. I want uh, I I'll take it early when it's attached to other categories. I don't even mind having a pure speed burner type on my team as long as there's only one of them. And, and he's not the wrong guy. Um, but, you know, guys like Ben Revere and Rajai Davis, they're never drafted high. Um, and it's funny because this is a year where you actually could have, if you, if you had taken Michael Bourne early, you really benefited this year. And, that, and that's something that I, I would have been wrong about. Um, 
But, you know, part of the reason for that is because Michael Bourne suddenly decided that he's going to hit a few home runs. And he's not just a one-dimensional burner anymore. And always the question with these guys is, what are they going to hit for average? Because if they don't hit, if they don't hit 300 or, say, 290, um, they're hurting you all over the place. Because if they don't hit 290, they're not getting on base that much in most cases. So they're not going to score runs. And, and it even affects the, uh, the number of stolen bases that they get. And you can be right about it by taking a Michael Bourne. But I bet you he goes too high next year. I bet he goes in the second round next year. Something you wrote in Wise Guy Baseball that really stuck with me. I remember reading it at the time and thinking, this is exactly right. And also, when I was rereading uh, Wise Guy Baseball in preparation for this conversation that we're going to have, you said there's a lot of owners who get Michael Bourne with a very early pick in the draft or for a lot of money at the auction, and they say, there, my stolen base category is taken care of. And it really is not taken care of. You're still 40 or 50 bags short of winning the category. And meanwhile, now you've spent a lot of money and you're way short of homers. You're way short of RBIs. And as you just said, you could be putting yourself in a hole batting average-wise. I, what I always wind up doing, I think, is um, doing some, spec, some speed speculating late in the draft. Um, on my NFBC this team this year it didn't work because i i did take ben revere i think in the 17th round or something but he was sent down in the first week and i had to drop him and and so i've lost out on ben revere but then you know i fabbed rajai davis so a guy who's never who's never really regarded never seems to enter the year with uh, with a full-time job uh, but always winds up playing um not that he's a great player or anything um but he's but he's going to equal what a lot of guys who went in the seventh and sixth rounds are going to do this year as far as the pure speed guys. My other pure speed guy, by the way, was Brett Gardner, who was supposed to miss two weeks in April, and yeah. we haven't seen him since. So let's move on to uh, some of the batters and pitchers that you looked at in Wise Guy Baseball this year. Um, and we'll say right up front, you're being very honest about this. Some of these calls were just misses, and the biggest one probably was Mike Trout. You were very... Um, concerned that the hype was way ahead of the guy's skills and here he is probably going to be the mvp yeah i mean he looks like the best player in the game and i saw him in arizona last year i think we were at the same games and um he just looked terrible to me um now i did hedge a little bit and say you know the talk on this guy is so enthusiastic and so unanimous and everybody says he's going to be a great player and i would have taken him you know as a speculation pick late in the draft, which is actually where he went. Um, but, yeah, he is a great player. I, I'm definitely wrong about that. I, okay, you know, you convinced me. And he's kept it up. He shows no signs of slacking and um, might be the best player in the game when you add up, you know, his, his offense and his defense and his, wow, and he's a great player. To me, this this illustrates a possible danger for owners down the road in that they're going to look back at 2012 and say, I was too conservative on Mike Trout, and they're going to get in with both feet on the next big name. And let's face it, Mike Trout is not an every-year occurrence. Mike Trout is an every five- or ten-year occurrence because I don't remember the last guy who came up as a rookie and had this kind of a huge impact on a fantasy roster or on the big league roster. Yeah, Fred Lynn is probably the last time it happened. But you know, also, uh, Bryce Harper was more highly regarded in a similar situation at the beginning of the year. Yes. And Bryce Harper's been pretty good this year. I'm not knocking him at all. Um, 
but as you say, it's extremely unusual for for something like this to happen, and it is nothing to base a strategy on. No. Edwin N. Karnassian of the Jays uh, was the subject of much hilarity at the uh, Tout Wars Mixed Draft because Corey Schwartz uh, was very aggressive on him. In the Wise Guy Baseball, you said that his one-trick home runs is a good trick, but his playing time is not secure. Here's Edwin N. Karnassian, an all-star uh, $30 player. Yeah, and again, dead wrong on this guy, and I had my suspicions because I saw what Corey did at uh, at Tout Wars, and he's a guy who knows what he's doing. The following week in Vegas, um, Lindy Hinkleman reached for him. Um, he probably could have waited another two or three rounds for him and and picked him up, and and I said, wow, what am I missing here? Um, and I looked it over, and he did, he did show a little bit of improvement. Part of my problem with him was that he is, as a third baseman, he's utterly inadequate. And was he going to be the full-time first baseman? I didn't think so. Um, so, again, wrong, lesson learned, um, and he goes, he's a guy who, who ranks a lot higher on my list next year. By the way, I still expect him to tail off a little bit at the end, but I mean, I'm already wrong, so it doesn't matter if he does. The uh, interesting lesson there for me about Encarnacion is my, my concerns going in were exactly what yours were. Where's he going to play? And they and they uh, because he appeared to be blocked by Adam Lind. But if you looked at Adam Lind, there was plenty of reason to suspect that Adam Lind might not be as solidly entrenched as a lot of people thought. And if you kind of extrapolated from that, you could say, "Geez, if Lind loses this job, and Encarnacion might have a might have a place to play because first base is not that demanding on the defensive spectrum." So maybe that was the lesson: look for a guy who's who's path to playing time is blocked by a guy who has question marks of his own uh what about alex rios here's a guy um you know it's just such a surprise that he's bounced back to have this kind of year he's up around 30 bucks nobody saw this coming is there a lesson here well he's always been a wildly inconsistent player and i i didn't really pan him this year i mean i said that i was he had last year's bums potential but the thing is you can't pay for it you have to let it fall to you and where he went in drafts, to me, seemed very sensible um, you know, after 150 players were taken, which is where he went. Um, and he didn't go for a lot of money in auctions. I bet there were very few auctions where he went for $15. Um, and that's fine. And that's where you take those players, and that's how you win. But there's definitely an element of luck in, in Alex Rios. I will not be, he will not be high on my list next year, although you're going to see him go in the third, fourth, fifth round next year, as he did the year before. Um, when I think his his ADP was about 42 or 45 or something like that. Um, He's too inconsistent. He's too um, a potential five-category player, but also a potential five-category nightmare. Right. So, yeah, you have to let those guys fall to you. You You can't take them after the career year or in the case of a a guy like that after the big year because he's a good player, um, but he's just not a superstar. Or he's not a superstar consistently enough to make a superstar level bet on him in any given year. Gene, let's turn to some uh, batters who underperformed your expectations. And at the top of that list, I think, is uh, Carlos Santana of Cleveland. Here's a guy a lot of us thought was going to be the number one catcher in all of baseball. He's certainly not playing like he's about a five-buck guy. Right. I have no one to blame but myself for this because he's a catcher. This happens to catchers all the time. They come up, they show promise as a hitter, and they do nothing with it. And a lot of times it'll take them 
three, four, five years, and then he'll start hitting again. I think one of uh, uh, Santana's problems is that he's too passive at the plate. Uh, you know, it's great to walk, and it's great to get on base, and it's bad to swing at bad pitches because you're going to get yourself out. But it's also bad to let 2-1 fastballs right down the middle go by. Uh, the good news is that that's a correctable problem. Um, and I think that probably over the winter you're going to see, you're going to hear talk, whether it's news or noise, it remains to be seen, but you're going to hear talk about him being more aggressive at the plate and looking for in a particular place for this, that, there. And the other thing is, he's a catcher. There may be a hidden injury here. We should say that uh, the the catcher disease or the catcher inconsistency also affected guys like Giovanni Soto, Wilson Ramos, uh, Kurt Suzuki, especially. And it's just risky taking catchers. What what that's the lesson really to be learned here. And I know, like you, a lot of years I go in with my with my lesson. Don't don't go in too early on closers, and then I get excited and I go in too early on closers, and I feel like an idiot. Yeah, I mean, I for several years I've been advocating, you know, lay back on catchers. Um, Take value if it's thrown at you. Again, look for durability where where possible. I mean, it's a tough position. There's a lot of fluke injuries there. But um, I got lucky this year because I uh, I got A.J. Pruszynski in the 19th round. Uh, but he's a guy that I always take. I mean, obviously, I didn't expect him to hit as many home runs as he had. But I did expect him to hit double figures in home runs and help you, you know, hit 280 or 285, which is an asset in the baseball of 2012. Talking baseball with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball. It's Baseball HQ Radio with Patrick. <clears throat> baseball HQ Radio with Patrick David and Gene. Let's talk about some pitchers who overperformed your expectations. You and everybody else, I should say, on R. A. Dickey. Yeah, well, you know, I'm going to take a little credit here because I, you know, I was not down on Dickey. I was, uh, you know, I didn't say go out and chase him, but I said, look, this guy's a pretty good pitcher. And as an end game guy, you go ahead and take a shot with him. And in fact, I got a reader who thanked me for for saying, "Yeah, go ahead." I mean, uh, I don't think many people had him at eight dollars, uh, which is which is what I did. By the way, I want to say this: um, my prices are not projections; they're bets, um, and it, it's risk against reward. I'm not when I say bid eight dollars on a guy, it doesn't mean I think he's going to earn eight dollars. I think that if you bid eight dollars for him, he's going to be an asset on your team. Right. Um, so I, I'm lowballing most of the most of the players, but I think eight dollars got R.A. Dickey in the vast majority of NL leagues. And 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 to your credit, you you did say he had a, he had good a good line. Knuckleballers come into their prime at older ages, and you'll probably get him for eight dollars or less. And it was a recommendation, which was good. You also had a, a similar miss, if you want to call it that, on Araldus Chapman, but you rostered him yourself, and you said. You're going to definitely go past the middle reliever average of six dollars because he had so much potential. With a guy like that, as long as you've drafted solidly to begin with, this is another advantage to drafting durability and solid at bats. Is that when the end game comes, you can afford to uh, to take a chance on a guy who is a little injury prone or a guy who doesn't seem to have an outlet for his talent. Uh, but to me, and especially as spring training went on, because which was you know happens after the book is written, is you could see that he was throwing strikes, and if this guy is throwing strikes, you knew that something really good was going to happen. Whether he was starting, whether he was even as a middle reliever, he would have he would have earned out. I think. Oh yeah. You know, I had I drafted him as a starter, and I'm delighted that he became a closer. Uh, but yeah, the talent, 
Sometimes the talent is going to find an outlet. It's like Alan Craig. You know, he he had no place to play. But guys who hit 300 with power, there was no team in baseball that, are, that can't afford to play that guy. The Yankees would have to play him. The Rangers would have to play him. The Cardinals certainly were going to find a spot for him. A couple of White Sox pitchers uh, following that Aroldis Chapman kind of model in the case of Chris Sale. Uh, we didn't know whether he was going to be a starter. A lot of people put in bids on him as a reliever. He's doing pretty well as a starter, despite uh, despite some questions. So we'll call that a, a reasonable call. Jake Peavy, though, uh, you said there's no way you're going over 5 bucks. He's a $20-plus pitcher this year. And is it because he's corrected this issue with uh, pitching from the stretch? Uh, it appears to. I mean, I, I looked at it um, towards the end of May, and I looked, and his numbers were definitely much better from the stretch. Um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll take the shot on that one. I was definitely wrong. Um, he, he did have also injury issues. Um, but, he, yeah, he's gotten, he's beaten his ballpark. He's, his stuff is great. He's striking guys out. He's not walking guys. He's, he's pretty much what he was, uh, just transferred to the American League. And, um, okay, you know, wrong. He goes back up the list next year. Looking at pitchers uh, who definitely uh, underperformed your expectations, uh, probably the biggest name on the list is Lincecum. Enough's been said about him. But you had high hopes for Jonathan Sanchez, who was traded into the Royals. And uh, to say the least, he wasn't good. good yeah, I guess so. I, you know, to bid $10 for a guy like that is, uh, was clearly excessive. Um, uh, I did was a little skeptical about him. Uh, about his control, but he has been a disaster. Um, he's a zero-dollar pitcher next year. You know, okay, wrong, Gene. Um, stuff only goes so far. You need brains. Um, reminds me of something that Bill James said many years ago that was he didn't think that in the history of baseball there was ever a great pitcher who wasn't smart, whereas there are lots of great hitters who aren't smart. Um, but it takes more than stuff. It takes brains. It takes the ability to harness what you've got. And there's a lot of pitchers around who are just good arms, and I think that Jonathan Sanchez has to be put into that category. Yeah, I think Felipe Polino in that same organization, you could make that same argument about him. A million-dollar legs and a 10-cent brain, my dad used to say about hockey players, and uh, and, and it was kind of the same thing. Uh, You you had some pretty high expectations of Daniel Bard of Boston, who's making the transition to a starter. Uh, As we know, that famously has not gone well. Yeah, I mean, with him it's all about throwing strikes. And as long as it doesn't matter what role you're using, man, if he's not throwing strikes, he's not going to be successful. Um, I still think it's too early to write him off. I think that for next year, he's he's worth a speculation play, you know, a dollar or two at the end, a reserve pick um, in a mixed league. Um, nothing more. Um, let's see what happens. That's why I like hanging on to the baseball forecaster and wise guy baseball, especially is to look at the analysis and say the analysis is sound, in for 2012, it didn't pan out, but maybe these are the kind of guys I really need to be taking a second look at in 2013 because this is where the bounce back is going to happen for good or ill, and the underlying analysis is still reasonable and sound. Yeah, and, and it's one thing I really like about Ron's um, extreme regression approach. There's a lot of it. Last year's bum strategy, I've always called it, and conversely, last year's heroes, too. I mean, the value is not going to be in last year's heroes. The value is going to be in, in last year's bums. So what we have to spend the offseason off doing is looking for good reasons to take players who underperformed last year. 
You also had some uh, high hopes for Dan Heron, who up till this year has been a very consistent, reliable guy. Irvin Santana, you said, uh, looked like a, a reasonable bet at 10 or 11 bucks. And now Zach Greinke's over there, and he's not looking that great. Is there something going on with the Angels as far as pitching goes? Because it, it just doesn't seem to be working that well, except for Jared Weaver. I think it's more the type of pitchers that those guys are. Um, I don't think that being with the Angels especially helps them the way being, say, with the Rangers helps because of their pitching coach. But I think in, in all those cases, maybe for different reasons, it's, it's the pitchers themselves who've... Um, I think Dan Heron has always been consistent, but also he's always been slump-prone within, the, within uh, a season. I mean, he'll have two-month stretches where he's just awful. And I think that's because he throws a few too many strikes, and that's a great approach to take. But I think that there's a downside to it, and that these are major league hitters. They're good. You throw the ball over the plate, at times they're going to hit you around. Um, and I think that's the story with him. Irvin Santana, I think we we talked about the 10-cent head. I think that's what he has. Cranky, I think, is a good pitcher, but not a great pitcher. I think we were all, myself included, a little thrown off by his fabulous, it was a 2009 um, he's not really that good. He's he's a little too hittable, possibly for the same reason as Heron, um, possibly because he just has a straight fastball. Um, he's a good pitcher. I, sh- I don't think he should ever be drafted as a number one pitcher. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your, your strategy in when you t- write about pitchers in Wise Guy Baseball, and when I've heard you talk about pitchers, you really adhere to, it seems, a number one starter, number two starter, like you're actually building a real rotation Rather than I know some guys like to get two number ones or like they want a Sabathia and a Dan Heron or and a, and a Felix Hernandez, is your strategy going into most drafts to have an actual one two three four five type rotation? Um, not so much. I'm not literal about it. Um, what I finally wound up doing this year going into the draft is I had a list of um, I think it was twelve pitchers, and I said I want two of these guys to head up my staff, and after that. And then, you know, maybe down to about 45 pitchers. By the time we're at my number 45 ranked pitcher, I want to have four pitchers like that. And then after that, it's more or less intelligent speculation. Um, I want to, I, this guy, you know, who's got the upside here? Um, and that actually has worked out pretty well. I wouldn't say that I'm going to go in and do that precisely next year, but I do like to, um, um, have pitchers who I, I will definitely like to have two pitchers who I think are ace quality pitchers. You know, whether you rank them one or two or one and a half and one and a half or, doesn't matter to me. But I want two really solid guys heading up my rotation. And let me put you on the spot. Who do you think those guys are in 2013? I like Adam Wainwright, who I have this year too. I think for the end of this year, I think he's going to be great. And I think he's going to continue it for next year, too. I think, again, next year, um, I'm also going to take rank Clayton Kershaw, the number one pitcher, even though he hasn't been the number one pitcher so far this year. He's still been plenty good, and I think the best is yet to come with him, too. And just out of curiosity, uh, how how high would you draft Mike Trout next year, and how high do you think your league mates will value him? definitely be one of the first five picks in fact that's exactly what i want to do next year is i want to pick fifth because that way you get a premium power speed guy and a better guy on the way back um 
than the other guys. I consider them to be there to be five legitimate, five category number one picks, namely Kemp, Braun, Cargo, Trout, and McCutcheon. Gene, I really appreciate you taking the time. I also wanted to ask you very briefly, uh, on your Facebook posts, a lot of times you post really interesting music clips, you're, and you're a musician yourself. You said in a recent Facebook post that your favorite band right now is a band called The Pillows. How did you hear about them, and tell us a little bit about them. The Pillows are a Japanese band who I believe started in the mid-'90s. Um, they're a sort of interesting postmodern mix. They have elements of punk, elements of the Beatles, elements of Nirvana, um, plus their own, they have a great drummer, their own melodic sense. Um, I first discovered them by accident on my Pandora. They came up on a very strange, on my, I don't know if you, any of your readers know the band The Senders, or, or sort of um, R&B, almost rockabilly band for, of New York. Um, they came up on my Senders radio, and they just grabbed me. I hit like, and I started hearing more songs, and every song I heard from this band was fantastic. Um, so um, they're my favorite band, and they've been my favorite band for a couple of years since I heard them. They have some great songs, and I'm glad to see that you like them just as much. Uh, I'm telling you, I really love the the song I want to play is uh, coming right up called Crazy Sunshine. It's just melodic and driving, and it's got everything about almost every genre of music that I like, it seems to capture what I like about that genre of music. If you see what I'm saying, uh, you know, it's, it's got that real punk energy and those driving guitars, and it's very melodic. It's got an interesting uh, chord pattern change in the chorus. Yeah, it's just a terrific song. It's not even in English, except for the two words in the title, but it's still just a great, great song. Yeah, I mean, and all their songs, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard a bad song from them. It seems they know they're a, a great postmodern rock and roll band. Everything great about what postmodernism can be, they are, and uh, I'd love to see them live. Oh, yeah, that would really be something. Gene, thanks very much for doing this. I appreciate you taking the time. It's always a pleasure, Pat. Anytime you want me, call me. Here I am, at your service. All right, that's Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. And check out Gene on Facebook. He posts a lot of interesting music, including his own, and we're going to be playing one of those at the end of the show. As I said, our regular commentaries come up next. To close out this segment, we're going to play The Pillows. This is Crazy Sunshine on Baseball HQ Radio.
One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. Matt Beagle is on deck with the Market Pulse. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes and leading off the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon is taking the week off, so we dug into the archives to find Rob's analysis in 2009 of a young Baltimore catching prospect named Matt Wieters. Matt Wieters enters the 2009 season as the top prospect in baseball, beating out David Price for the number one spot in our top 100 prospect list. At 6'5", 230 pounds, the 22-year-old Wieters excels at every phase of the game. Offensively, the switch-hitting Wieters has plus bat speed, a very nice, short, powerful stroke. He drives the ball to all parts of the field and makes consistent and solid contact. All Wieters did in his professional debut in 2008 was hit 355 with a 454 on base percentage and a 600 slugging percentage. Wieters had 22 doubles, 27 home runs, 91 RBIs, and 437 at-bats between high A and double A. 
Even more impressive, at least for a first-year player, was the fact that he had very good plate discipline. His batting eye in 2008 was an impressive 1.07, meaning that he walked more than he struck out. Defensively, Weeders made tremendous strides in 2008. At Georgia Tech, where he played in college, he was a good catcher, and people liked his skills, but as a pro, he's even become more polished. For a big man, he moves really well behind the plate, he's surprisingly agile, and is a strong and very accurate throwing arm. So what we have here is a switch hitting catcher with good plate discipline, power, the ability to hit for average, with excellent defensive skills, and a strong, accurate throwing arm. It isn't hard to see why Matt Wieters is the top prospect in baseball. The offseason trade of Ramon Hernandez indicates that the Orioles believe that Wieters is close to being ready for his major league debut, and you should definitely keep an eye on him this spring. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. And of course, Matt Wieters did make his major league debut in 2009, batting two hundred eighty-eight with nine homers and 43 RBIs in 354 at-bats. His batting average has never quite measured up to that two hundred eighty-eight debut, but his home run power certainly has grown. He had 22 last year in 2011 in 500 at-bats and already 16 home runs this year in 389. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on the top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. Baseball HQ's call-up reports this week looked at Manny Machado, the infielder for Baltimore, and many others. So if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about learning from your experience. You can learn a lot from Cliff Lee's performance this season. He's only won two games all year despite basically performing up to expectations, maybe a little bit below. Lee's performance shows you it's not always the outcome of your draft that makes the difference. You may have a team in first or last place, and when you analyze it after the season, make sure you're looking at the draft process differently than the actual outcome you experienced. You could have a lower division team that was excellent on draft day. Your draft process was good, but maybe you rostered guys like Evan Longoria, Corey Lubke, Troy Tulowitzki, or Cliff Lee. These guys had very unlucky seasons, either through injury or performance. It's important to distinguish between these factors. If you finish at the bottom of your league, it's very tempting to go back and redo your entire draft strategy for next year. You may have had a very successful strategy that just didn't give you the outcome you expected. So it's important, again, to distinguish between luck and skills, hit rate, home run per fly ball rate, are two things that vary tremendously for both hitters and pitchers and can skew the results significantly. One of my favorite leagues is a draft and hold league, and they allow you to have more than one team because there's no trading during the season. People think I'm crazy for having more than one team, but it spreads the risk. Every year I have a team in the money, and every year I have a team that finishes somewhere else. Sometimes it's in the money, sometimes it's in the middle of the pack. This year that team has Cliff Lee on it and is in the bottom because he hasn't provided the wins, and this is a points league where wins are very important. I know my process is I can't chase wins, but I will make likely bets for teams that look to be good the following season. In this case, the Phillies were primed to be another excellent team with Cliff Lee being an excellent pitcher. And I didn't take an early pick on him. 
took him where he should be taken, and took the appropriate amount of risk, but it didn't pay off. It doesn't mean my process is bad. Because I have another team in this league, and each year that team seems to be in the top, it reminds me that my process is correct, but the outcomes will always vary. Because of this, I often do three teams. Why spend all that money when there's no way all three teams can win the league? Again, it minimizes my risk, and I know that my process will yield me often one, if not two teams in the money. And therefore, I end up ahead at the end. Because I know the unfortunate incidents, injuries, and unexpected performance can alter the landscape each year. I've yet to finish one and two or one, two, three. I have finished one and three one year. But I've been doing it long enough to know that my process works. But each year, I have to wait to see what will be the outcome. With the Market Pulse for Baseball HQ and HQ Radio, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about looking at the top prospects from 2001. Last week's exercise was fun. I looked back 10 years to see how successful we would have been hoarding the top 10 prospects of 2002. The point? Many of us sit here in our keeper leagues, refusing to part with today's top prospects that sit in our farm systems. Those guys could deliver a missing piece to a championship run, but no, you can't have Jerickson Profar, or Dylan Bundy, or Will Myers, or Garrett Cole, even if trading them could bring us a flag. Last week I looked at 2002's top names and found that only three of the ten hit the ground running and half did not put up a productive season until four to five years down the line. Three were complete failures. Bottom line, the success rate is just not that good. But that was just one year. Since this is a vacation week for me, I thought it would be a good time to do the same exercise with an outwardly better year, 2001. But let's have a specific focus this time. We hoard our farm players now because we expect them to provide a fairly quick return on investment. You might never consider trading Mike Olt for, let's say, Paul Canerco. Olt is a player you might be able to keep for several years. Canerco is probably overpriced and unprotectable, but perhaps an upgrade that could bring you a title this year. So let's see how many of the top 10 prospects from 2001 provided a reasonably quick return on investment. Number 10 that year, Adam Dunn. He pretty much hit the ground running, hitting 19 homers with a 262 batting average in half a season in 2001. The next two years, he displayed mid-20s power and a low batting average. It wasn't until 2004 that he broke out with his first of six consecutive 40 home run seasons. But for those leagues that only allow you to keep players for three years, you would have missed out on that. Number 9 was C.C. Sabathia, who quickly became a frontline starter in 2001, winning 17 games for the Indians. While he was certainly productive and serviceable, he posted an ERA under four just once in his first five seasons. It wasn't until 2006 that he began his current string of ERAs no higher than the low threes. Number eight was Josh Beckett, who was number one on the 2002 list, clearly lived up to that billing. He's been highly productive since 2003. Number seven, Vernon Wells. 
hit the ground running by posting the first of five consecutive highly productive seasons in 2002. He's been erratic since 2007, but those who kept him as a farm player definitely got their money's worth. The number six player in 2001 was Carlos Pena, who moved up to number five in 2002. While he was moderately productive, his MLB teams considered him a bit of a disappointment until his breakout in 2007. Number five, Sean Burroughs, number three prospect in 2002 and a complete bust. Number four player in 2001, Ryan Anderson, never made it to the majors. Here's what Wikipedia says. After a series of injuries and questions regarding his work ethic and diligence, Anderson retired from baseball and is now pursuing a career as a chef. Hmm. The number three player in 2001, Ben Sheets. Been a productive major leaguer for the past 11 years, though he's missed two complete seasons. However, his ERAs in his first three years were 476, 415, and 445, by which time most of his fantasy owners probably would have let him go. The number two player was Josh Hamilton. He moved up to number six, actually down to number six in 2002, and was essentially MIA for six years, way beyond the time that any fantasy team would have hung on to him. And the number one player in 2001, Corey Patterson, was marginally productive his first three years in the majors. His breakout year was 2004, 24 homers, 32 steals, and a 266 batting average, but he has had only one comparable season since. Again, keeping Patterson as a farm player would have had limited value for those fantasy leagues that limit ownership to three years. While there were more productive major leaguers among this group of prospects, very few provided immediate profit. In many cases, it took at least three seasons for these players to show their true potential. So, if you still have a chance to deal off a farm player for your title run's missing piece, it is probably the move with the best percentage play. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about in-season extreme regression drafting one month later. Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 Eastern at USAToday.com. While he's on holidays, I'll be pinch-hitting for him this week, so be sure to check that out. Ron also discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Instead of our regular theme music, we're going to go out this week with a song from our feature guest this week, Gene McCaffrey, featuring drummer Bill Stevenson. You might know him from The Descendants. And this song is perfectly titled to close our show, This is the End.
And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of August the 18th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 31 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show and leave a comment and some star ratings. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball. Gene's a great guy, a great baseball mind, and a hell of a musician, as you can hear. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, our League Watch analysts Harold Nichols and Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse columnist this week, our minor league analyst taken from the archives was Rob Gordon, and our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some more great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Stephen Nickran's Starting Pitching Buyer's Guide looks at starters who have big right-left splits in their base performance value, and Dr. HQ Rick Wilton has his latest weekly look at the injury situation. Plus, we have all our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday. This week's buyer's guide looks at stolen base targets on stolen base teams. And of course, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums as well. Remember to check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with Baseball HQ minor league expert Rob Gordon on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.